I'm Madria, and this is the Working with Woes podcast. We are about to start episode four within the Basement Child series, and this is me sharing my story with you guys. It's been really hard to talk about it. I've done a lot of self-care every day that I've recorded because it's just necessary, and I do it before recording so that I'm in a better headspace because I feel the emotions and I visualize a lot of the things that I've talked about very, very um, avidly or very detailed. So I do some pre-self-care and some post-self-care. So last episode, I believe we had finished the years 7 through 14, what those years kind of look like. And I ended with being left in a parking lot by my biological mother in not the friendliest way possible. So from there, I'll be talking about perhaps the next two years, two and a half, till I was about 16 and a half. So the parking lot. So I had to hop into a car with a stranger and drive two and a half hours south to the first foster place. Now that one had some merit. They cared about people. Every penny they got from social services, they invested into the child. This was the first time that I got to pick my own clothes, brand new. They took me to Walmart. We went together as as their family. And we went to Walmart and they spoiled me rotten. They prepared the room for me and made it special. They put chairs in there. They painted the dresser white and gold. They put a bunk bed so I could have friends over. And they were so good about me inviting my friends over. So my biological parents and the pastor told me that I would be entering foster care after school had ended for the summer. I think they did that so that I couldn't tell anybody. Jokes on them, I had memorized my friend's phone numbers at the end of June before school let out. So as soon as I was in the foster place, I called them up. And I told them what happened and asked if they would like to come visit. And they did. And so there would be five of us and we'd all have these sleepovers. They came over for my birthday. We did Christmas. They came over about twice a month on average. So sometimes more, sometimes less. And I never had freedom to come out of my room. So when I went there, They were like, you can come out of your room, you know, and I would just come out and do the dishes and go back in. And they're like, you can watch TV. And they actually talked to me about it. They're like, you are not allowed to go in your room for two hours. You have to hang out with us. So there was a lot of promise in that place. It seemed good, but there were mental health issues in that family, in that biological family. You know, people go off of their meds. They have mood disorders. They have factors of nutrition, weight problems, whatever it is. It all came out, and it was oftentimes quite ugly. It wasn't directed at me. In fact, very seldom it was. For some reason, this first family seemed to have a soft spot for me. But as time went on, I was getting blamed for things that I didn't do. You know, stealing things or lying or just stuff like that. And I would always say that I didn't do it because I didn't. And they never believed me. And there were a few things that were happening 
that I tried to kind of talk to my social worker about and they approached the foster parent and the foster parent laughed it off and said, oh, you know, she's just mad because she's not the center of attention or, oh, she can't take a joke or, oh, this kid didn't mean it that way. And there was some sexual abuse that went on between foster kids that were there. My body parts were grabbed. I had no privacy in the bathroom. People would just jump in the shower and stare at my chest, which was beginning to develop. And it was so uncomfortable. They wouldn't leave when I told them to. They put their hands in my pants and they would hug me like in that same kind of forward grabbing motion. And they were stronger than me because I hadn't been shut away in a room for 14 years. And they would do that and pull me in as if it was a front hug and then slide their hands across my chest. And I would beat their chest or I'd fight and squirm and say like, stop it, stop it. And they would just laugh. And um, that was really awkward because my body was just developing and I wasn't strong. I wasn't able to defend myself. I hated it. People were accused of sexual abuse left, right, and center. There were like three foster kids that got pulled out. And I don't know if it's because they did the sexual abuse or like what it was. But I know that when it was my time to leave... Because I think they were just pulling out all of the foster kids and placing them in different places. When it was my time to leave, that family fought for me to stay there. And I fought to stay there because we had formed some sort of friendship. I will say that when the other foster kids left, there was a lot less of that sexual abuse stuff. And so I was not sad to see them go... (laughs) Well, the one I was, because we ended up being friends for years, and I had connected with her after living at that place. But things got bad there. I was riled. My buttons were pressed intentionally. Nobody cared. I would try to be like, please stop. Please stop. You're making me very angry. Please stop. And nobody would listen. So then I would swear. And that generated reaction. So then I would swear again. And then um, just, yeah, just over the top. There was just no emotional support. And... So, but three months in, my first three months were pretty good. That's where I could grow my hair out. I was never allowed to have long hair. It was always cut short like a boy. And I started to fill out and develop that womanly figure. So I was now 14 and starting to look it. But I was still short and I was still very slender and frail and very quiet and still hollow Around that three-month mark, I got a phone call. It was very random. I didn't even know how to use the phone until I went there. And it was a social worker. And she said, I am with your parents, and they want to know if you've changed. I just paused and looked down for a bit and thought. And I said no. But the truth is, I had changed. I had changed a lot. My appearance was different. My demeanor was different. And I knew that if I went back, it would only be a matter of days or weeks before things returned or got worse. Um, Especially the way my mother was going with her abusive words and stuff. So I said no. And it was only a second. And the social worker was like, they don't want you back. And that was it. So I was pretty devastated and pretty hurt. And that family was pretty empathetic. They kind of just let me get away with not doing chores for a bit. They let me be sad for a bit. And then they let me invite my friends over and tried to somewhat normalize the situation. 
They were pretty sweet. And I also reconnected with my twin during that time. And they were very supportive of that. And they did their best to bring me out of that shell. And I actually ended up staying friends with that family for years after I lived there. Even though I left on bad terms. Um, I didn't know there was a lot more to the story that didn't center around me because it seemed like I was being targeted. That's just how I felt. But years later, when I reviewed the files from social services, I, le- I learned in there that there were some mental health issues that were coming out to play with people not doing their meds and things like that, that I had nothing to do with, but I just perceived it because I was the recipient to some of the abrasiveness, but definitely not all of it. Anyway, I stayed friends with them for a long time after. And actually, their eldest son, their eldest biological son and I were best friends for many years. And he would advocate for me if I was blamed for something. Even after I left, he knew it wasn't me. And he like put notes all over the house saying, who knows the truth about me? And um, just like generated this this reaction and eventually his parents and siblings would cave and they would be like, okay, it wasn't her. I actually also became best friends with the eldest sister. And so the three of us would always hang out and then even the second eldest brother, he would join in. He was, he was annoying for a part, but as he got older, we tolerated him <laughs> and he became his own person. So the four of us would hang out all the time. So I had a bit of some teenage normalcy there. This first year with them, they lived on a farm outside of the new town that I was at. The school that I went to was not friendly, compassionate, or kind at all. They were judgmental and very small town minded. And I was not accepted because I looked different and I acted different. So this family, That eldest son, he worked hard for me to feel accepted. He was my buddy. He was two grades ahead of me. And he would visit me on the breaks and, you know, introduce me to people. And if somebody said something kind of snide about me, he would jump in and be like, you know nothing. And he just was such a good friend. That bond wasn't there right away with them. It took time. Even after I left, it took time to develop it. But when it was there, it was good. And they did seem to always have a soft spot for me and to know my innocence in the accusations that floated around with the other foster kids present. And I'm not happy to say that I was a recipient to some of the sexual abuse that was going on and I didn't like it and I didn't know what to do. And I tried to say stuff, but without being direct and social workers just dismissed it as a game or a lie. And so I didn't know what to do. And I think that led to my attitude. I suddenly developed an attitude some months later, and that was new to me. But surprise, I got my period. And I had no idea what getting your period was like, because I was a late bloomer. So once I did get it, everybody was like, Oh, and it was like, congratulations. And I was like, congratulations, this feels awful. Anyways, but I did end up leaving. This is where the foster hell kicks in is the year, the 15th year of my life. I was not quite 15 yet. And so I moved around nine times, about nine times in that year. I was put in respite at this one place with an older couple. And the guy was a lecher. He had a thing for me, would tell me to go dance naked in the rain and lock me in the house and try to 
come in the shower when I was in there and demand that I let him in and try to scare me into exposure. And I was just like, I'm not having it because <laughs> I had lived on a farm for one year and I had toughened up. So those chores were really good. We did do chores at that first place, but they didn't use me for those chores. Those chores strengthened my body and my mentality. It was awesome. So I didn't give that old man what he wanted. And I was out into another place. And this place was a dysfunctional couple. There were fights going on. And I was sort of the ladies like, oh, I want to make things better. I'm going to take in a foster kid is what it felt like. And she tried to tell me she loved me. <laughs> but by then I knew what love was not. And she did not love me. She tried to kind of forcefully adopt me. And I said, if you make this happen, because I don't want it to happen, I will make your life hell. And I meant it. I would have just been cheeky. So she got the hint. I was often shipped into her daughter's hands for, you know, babysitting or whatever. And her boyfriend would come into my room like at night and just lay with me in bed as if we were sleeping together. Yeah, it was very strange. And she would come in while he did that and just look through my stuff and take whatever she wanted. So very interesting. I did not like her or him. And there was nobody to really talk to. I found my grandparents just by looking them up. I remembered their name. And I had met them once when I was about 12 or so. And my grandpa had looked at me and smiled and said, Are you a statue? Because I didn't say anything. I wasn't allowed to say anything. And um, so I found them when I was 15. And they said, Yeah come on over, we'll visit. And I was quite different. I was rough. I dressed in a leather trench coat. I had like dark lipstick, black eyeliner. I grew my hair out and it was dark and I put rings on all of my fingers. So I was very tough looking. And I did that on purpose because as I circulated around foster hell places, I learned that if I can scare off people with my appearance, they probably won't try to have sex with me. So it did work most of the time. But they looked past that. They gave me the milk and cookies. I got to experience that. And they were just grandparents. They were so nice. It was nice to know that I could go visit them. I didn't visit very often to start with because I, I didn't know how to feel. You know, I never had grandparents before, so I didn't know what to say often or if they meant it or if they really wanted me there or if things would go sour, but it didn't. My grandparents really, really liked me. Anyway, school. Oh boy, did I ever skip school. I skipped a lot. I got in school suspensions like nobody's business, but there's a reason why. So bouncing around from foster hell to foster hell where, where I was either used for chores or sex, right? People just saw you as a sex or a dollar sign. That's it. You had no value. It's very much like Dalits in the caste system of India. Dalits are the lowest and they don't matter. And you can do what you want to that person. And it doesn't matter because they mean nothing. That's what I was in the foster system. However, everybody matters and I matter too. And I've learned that. So I spent time on the streets. I spent time away from the foster hell places and I, I don't care. Sometimes there wasn't even food there anyway because they would just visit um, other places, stay at hotels and leave me there and not buy groceries. 
and I had to do all the chores for Christmas and sit at different tables. It wasn't fun. So I took to the streets and I did, I dabbled in drugs, not a lot, just a little bit of hallucinogens and weed with my friends and it was all right. And then I drank, I started drinking, not a lot at that time, but, um, I had the crowd and then I was also dating and, and then I would wander the streets at night, all night. Didn't matter if it was in the fall. I didn't have a winter jacket. I never got one. I had to wear just my tank top. Um, yeah, the thing about foster care is they get money from social services and they have to fill out forms, but they lie. Some of them blatantly told me they lied. They're like, I don't care. I'm just getting money. And they keep it and they pocket it. But when the social worker came around, they're like, oh, we love her. She's so great. And, you know, we're trying to help her with um, eating properly. And it was just all bullshit. Like, I didn't get rides when it was raining out. They made me walk. And I lived, like, way across town. Like, didn't even give me money for the bus. So it was stupid. Yeah, there's some anger there. Because they're just, it's a system. And it is flawed. And social services doesn't give a rat's ass. They let themselves be played. And they're ruining thousands of lives. Similar to residential schools, right? Residential schools. There's hundreds of of bodies being found and thousands of stories told of this terrible treatment by the government, by Canada. And it's awful. It is terrible. But you know what? The same thing's happening in social services and I'm one of many, 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 many lives that was ruined. And I can't do a thing about it because I'm not a multi-billionaire to pursue them legally. I have no status, no name, no great career, no influence. So social services is the residential school and nobody cares because I'm not First Nation and a lot of the abuse was not sexual. So, so much time passed by that I can't even do anything legally. It is angering. Anyway, so on the streets, I would wander around and I would walk fast to stay warm. I had friends that I would pop in. I had enough friends that I could circulate and nobody really felt like I overstayed my welcome. So that was nice. But sometimes, you know, especially around holidays, there was nowhere to go because everybody was busy. So I would skip school and I would get detention and in-school suspension. And then I would sleep at school. I joined choir and instead of singing on the risers, I actually found a little nook by the stairs that were behind the, the risers and I slept there and it was pretty comfortable. Like it was warm. Yeah, not my favorite time of life. I know what hunger is and I started smoking because it made my stomach upset and I taught myself to not be hungry, to not recognize hunger. And the thing is, I was 15 when this started, so I'm still developing as a teenager and still growing. And that is actually a critical development period for women. Not good. And that is part of the repercussions that I still deal with worrying about starvation and not quite eating properly. That's too bad. Those were the two years. Life on the farm with the family that meant well, but had some issues get out of hand. And some people would come over and just treat me like crap because I was the foster kid and they just didn't like me. 
and sometimes they turned it into sport, sometimes they stood up for me. It was hard to know when that was coming, but it was wonderful to be around animals. I had never been around animals and to be able to, you know, milk a cow or sit on a donkey or, you know, lead a horse or pet a cat and pet a dog. And then I did get a cat on the farm as well, but it got sick. I used to give it raw eggs and then a tomcat came in and used to have his fun with the kitten. And I came back one day from cadets and the cat was lying in her milk and eggs. And I don't know if she got sick and got bloated or what happened, but she ended up dying and I was devastated. And they thought I had poisoned her. And I was devastated to learn that. And that was actually in the social services files that I found years later. It was interesting to see in those files how I was portrayed as a game player as a liar, vain, um, just all these general assumptions that go across the world of foster kids. Nobody got to know me. My social workers didn't actually care. They didn't say, how are you doing? Are you okay? They kind of tried. They're like, okay, yeah, let's let her have her friends over. Here's some money for clothes and stuff like that, which was nice. It was nice, but there was no help for skill building to prepare me for normalcy or for life out there like there was just no help it's like here we're gonna put you in foster hell and we're gonna hope that you do well and if you don't you're in the majority so have fun I've tried writing to the government to the province of Saskatchewan because that's the social services department that let me down when I was seven and 14 and I tried writing to the government like to Ottawa and just telling what happened and saying, you know, I was let down by the government. And Ottawa responded with, oh, you know, we're sorry, but you have to contact your province because it's provincial. And the province didn't even bother to reply. Is that okay? No, it is not. Because they call themselves social services, family, services, child, care. And those are all bullshit terms because I'm just one of many examples of their failure and their evident negligence. And the negligence is evident in those files that I read. They took the notes. They closed my file. They didn't give a rat's ass. It would be nice to get at least like an apology or something, you know? But as it is, I get nothing and I get to know how little I actually mattered as a person. They did provide opportunity for counseling and I did take it. But when I was in that first foster place on the farm, I confided about stealing meds because other foster kids had told me to do that. They said, if you're sad, this will help. If you're really sad, take it. Some of them tried to force that stuff on me. It was Prozac, lithium, and I forgot what the third one was. Things that you shouldn't take if you don't have a mental disorder diagnosis. And I was tested for ADD, ADHD at different periods of life. I don't have it. I think I'm just extremely creative. And a few other things. My situation drove my mood and my well-being and my lack of support definitely was not a help. You know, social services was keen to be like, oh yeah, you know, go see a counselor. And so I did. And that counselor when I confided about some of the things going on in that first foster place about stealing the meds 
and not even taking them because I didn't know how to <laughs> take them. I didn't know what they were supposed to do. I just took them and then I put them back. And then I expressed some of my like angst about, you know, the things that were going on there that I just wasn't okay with and didn't understand. And the counselor, of course, opened up her session with whatever you say will be kept confidential and made me sign a no harm agreement. And then the foster parent came to pick me up and she told him everything right in front of my face. So you want me to go to counseling after that? That was my first experience. The first experience technically was the evil pastor, but that was more for my biological mother's benefit than mine. So this was supposed to be for my own benefit. Anyway, there was no support at school. I had my friends to come visit. The family did have a soft spot, but their issues just got big and out of hand and actually had nothing to do with me. And it was time to leave. Time on the streets taught me to toughen up. It taught me how to cope um, with being cold. And I did go out of my way to try to see my biological family. I saw my biological father and he did not acknowledge me at all. I would try to see my biological mother and she would complain to social services. I would try to reach out to my sisters at school through friends. And it was always shut down and criminalized almost. But I still tried. I just wanted them to see that I wasn't so bad. And that I still love them. And I did write my biological mother a note saying that she hurt me. And she did respond saying that we were at an impasse. And it was just very indifferent and not apologetic at all. At the age of 15, I took the reins from social services. I had some meetings with my social worker. And I said, I don't want to be in this situation anymore. I want control over where I can live because this isn't working. And that social worker had to agree. Like it just wasn't working. And I was not going to succeed at school at this rate because I skipped like a ridiculous amount of classes, but I did some homework in class and I happened to do well enough to pass. I know I failed choir, that's for sure. So she informed me about this situation where I could enter a rental thing and then I'm responsible for my own self in a room and board type of situation. And I pounced on it. I said, yep, let's do that. So she got everything ready. And for my 16th birthday, there was this huge party that some people put on and my friends were there. And I used to go to this youth center called Joel's Place. More on that later. I'd be finding a lot of cool people there. Um, and I could be myself. I could be that rough teenager. Uh, so it was pretty cool. So they did a huge thing for my 16th birthday. This huge cake. Half of it was white so that people like me who can't eat chocolate could have some. And my friends and I, like once everybody kind of had their fill and the cake sat there for a while, we had a cake fight and it was awesome. Anyway, so then my social worker presented me with the form to go into this room and board sort of status and that meant I could choose where I lived and I took it and I signed it and I moved in with my friends and they kind of walked me through that process and said I should do it and I can move in with them so I did and it was not cool not cool I lived with them for six months the best thing that came out of it was my cat my friend and I we'd been friends since elementary that first farm that I went with that family they ended up moving to that same area two and a half hours south. And we went to a farm and we got cats. And it was like my cat picked me. 
and I've she is still alive. Her name is Shandova, and she is over 19. And it's crazy, she still climbs trees, <laughs> but her age is definitely showing now. So the short end of the stick is she would blackmail um, the eldest son of that family that I stayed friends with for a long time. She would blackmail him or something is what he said. Cause I was like, how come you don't invite me to places anymore? And it's always just her. And he said, I can't because she's blackmailing me. And he wouldn't say anything else. I was always stuck on their farm and she would go out and have all this fun with my friends. And so I got drunk and I confronted her and weird and unapologetic and aggressive. And she said, we just used you for the money. That's it. We don't care about you. And her parents were right there and they all agreed. So I was like, you know what? I'm dropping out of school on Monday. And I told a teacher that on the Thursday, I think it was. I said, I'm dropping out. I'm going back to the streets. I don't care. It's better than this. And that teacher was a teacher's aide in my grade 10 class for one of my friends. And she was like heartbroken, apparently. I didn't register it because I was an angsty, angry teen. And she wrote me a card and I still have it. I've had it in my guitar case for years. And she made me this little clay angel and spray painted it copper. And it just said, you know, think really hard about what you're going to do. And I did. And I had two jobs at the time. So um, I was working and putting myself through school. So I was working in a garage and I would do odd jobs with the cars and then clean. And then I also did house cleaning. And that was where Carl and Cecile came in. They were my first two jobs and they paid above whatever the minimum wage was because they wanted to honor that I was already a hard worker. And I was pretty proud of that. They said, look, we hear you're going to drop out of school. Why don't you move in with us? I said, sure. And I was going to move in after science fair, but I ended up moving in before. And that was a huge turning point in their lives and in mine. And that is where we're going to end it today, because this is the beginning of the hopeful part. It was an uphill battle for sure, but we made it to the top. And now we have a good view. And I think that Carl and Cecile are the parents that I always wish I had. They're not perfect by any means, and they weren't wealthy or anything, but they cared, and they still care. And I care back, and they see that I care back, and they like that I care back. I matter to them. They're the parents that I've wanted, and, well, they kind of picked me. Okay, Cecile picked me, and I do have an interview with them that I will post a little bit later. But that's a good place to end today's podcast with a little bit of a hopeful note. I look forward to sharing a little bit more with you next time. (music) 